A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome, beautiful mama. When we think about how we want to raise our children in this really crazy, busy time that we live in, so many of us are wanting to embrace a slower pace, aren't we? We're wanting to let them enjoy their childhood. We don't want to be rushing them from one place to the next. We really want to embrace a different pace. I know that that's what you want as well. Which is why I'm so happy to bring you this interview with Helen Hayward, She has written a book called A Slow Childhood, Notes on Thoughtful Parenting. But more than just an insight into how to embrace a slower pace for your kids, this is a book that is so close to my heart because it is a book that talks about how we balance our own ambition, our own needs, our own very full lives before parenthood with the needs of our children. As she beautifully says it, how do we balance devotion with ambition? How do we balance devotion with an How do we balance devotion with ambition? That's what the next half hour will be all about. I know there'll be so much in here that helps you pause and rethink what you're prioritizing. But as she often says in this interview, it's not easy. It's a devotion that we need to bring to this journey, but it's so worth it in the end. This is the Happy Mama Movement with your host, Amy Taylor Cabaz, author, mama to three, and editor of the Happy Mama magazine. In my mamahood journey, I have gone from an overachieving, addicted to busyness superwoman to finally slowing down, simplifying and realising that being a mama is the greatest self-development teacher in the world. And after more than 15 years covering breaking news, I've swapped current affairs to inspiration and now bring you the best I can find every week to help us feel more connected as women as we raise our families. Because when we come together, amazing things happen. So welcome to the movement. I came to having children in quite a roundabout way. I was 35 before I had my first, uh, before I had my son. Um, I probably overthought it quite a lot, and I do elaborate that in the first chapter. Mm. Um, and I think after a certain point, there is there is something called overthinking. But I knew that it was never going to be a casual thing for me. I knew it wasn't life's bucket list. I knew I wouldn't be ticking it off. I did have friends around me who were treating it in that way, but I knew having effectively put it off for so long that it wasn't going to be that way for me. I had three sisters. They'd all had children at sensible ages in 
Australia while I was living in London. So I did know the reality of it. Um, devotion to me wasn't some abstract thing. It was really about practical loving. And I knew that practically loving another human being was going to be pretty all-consuming for me because I wasn't going to be able to put myself before that love. So it was a it was a really hard thing. It was a kind of reckoning rather than a decision. Um, and look, I still experience that. Mm. Um, my son is currently in Newmere, and it sounds very exotic on a boat, but he sends me these torrid emails saying, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And, and I feel just as I did when he was six. Mm. Um, and the ambition, well, I think trying to serve a higher good, we're all doing that. And because I was quite clear in my head, I'd, I'd done a PhD. I had published my first book. I, I do know what it is to be ambitious. Um, I'd worked fairly well in publishing and, and in higher education. So I knew how that felt and to have your name on the office door and, yeah, to get that recognition. And so I didn't put that down lightly. Um, and I only ever put it down temporarily. Um, I suspended it rather than giving it up. People talk about sacrifice. Well, I don't think sacrificing is to give up something good in the service of another. I never actually gave anything up, but I did suspend and I did, I did what I call surrender. I did embrace the complexity of family life. Mm. And I did that with the thought that if I did that wholeheartedly enough, I would come through the other side whole and and that my kids through that process would be more independent of me than they might have had I hung on to my career um, with my fingernails all the way through. Mm. I'd like to hear your thoughts more about how much you gave to your children, gave of yourself to your children in the hope that one day they will need less. I love that idea you talk about in your book. But just to focus in on that idea of surrendering your ambition for a little while a bit more, because a lot of the mummers that listened to this podcast and follow my online magazine is they're right in the middle of that. They've built what could be a very big life with a lot of work, perhaps a lot of investment in education and a lot of hard work over the years. And they are being called to step back from that. They are being called to look at the balance a little bit differently. And perhaps that's not what they should be focusing on right now. But there's a part of them that still their sense of self and their sense of worth is still very much tied up with that role. How did you balance that? I never did. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> um, I never did, and I was in very good company of practically every mother I knew mm. who was doing similar ducking and weaving. Um, but we all knew in our hearts why we were doing it. I, I would also say that um, being there for your children is, having worked as a psychotherapist, it's a form of emotional work, and, and work by which I mean... <clears throat> overcoming your own maybe anxiety or your own ambition in order to to just transcend that for a bit to meet the needs of your child mm. and that that you know that really is probably for me and I certainly 
for my friends and colleagues, that was harder work than going to the office. Oh, yes. And, and so my interest is in the thoughts in our head while we're doing what we're doing. Um, there, I don't, you probably know the uh, American psychologist who did a lot of work in flow, Mihai Shiksent Mihai, mm-hmm. and he worked out that people are thinking about what they were doing only 47% of the time that they were doing what they were doing. And so what you're thinking in your head is a better predictor of your well-being than what you're actually doing. Mm. I realized probably more after the birth of my second than my first child because with my first I was still integral. I still had my work on the side and my child and my life. And when I had a second child in a small London flat, that exploded Mm. And there wasn't enough room for my work on the side and and my life. It all got merged. And I realized, and I do talk about this in the book, I have a chapter called Heffalump Trap, which is my take on maternal depression, which for me wasn't depression per se, which I think is a Band-Aid term, but more feeling overwhelmed. And so my feeling of overwhelmed, I realized, and and I was in therapy at the time, so probably had more insight than I might normally have because I had the help of someone else. But I realized that my independence prior to having children was in a way pseudo-independence because it was premised on suppressing my own neediness, my own helplessness, my own desire for dependence. And that had been really strongly fought for. I had lived in London for 15 years, half on my own, half with my partner, but still all the way as an independent woman. And so that was terribly confronting to realize that I met the, my kids' needs through my own need. Mm. And how did you reconcile that? Um, I think awareness is probably more than half of it. Yes. And a kind of sympathy for that kind of neediness in oneself Mm. without feeling you have to succumb to it all the time. I mean, one of the other reasons that I did make that decision to put my, as I said, battens down when my second child was born, I still did things, I was still training, but I wasn't working, working, I was focusing on family. One of the reasons I did that was that I realized how bad I was with stress. Mm. You know, I'm still really bad. You know, I'm called stressy. I'm getting stressy. Um, And I think, you know, I I have a mother who, well, she recently died, but she had four daughters in quick succession and, and she got angry stressy. So she would bang cupboard doors in the kitchen and probably in retrospect got quite a lot of, relief from doing that but mm-hmm. I as a child really didn't like that so uh, uh, along with my sisters none of us have banged the cupboard doors and we've all had children and so we've had to process that in another way um, and yeah I've had help and I think having other people involved in the care of your children is an enormous blessing even if it's only for one hour a week I think yes. just the fact of an other person coming in and loving your child 
even on the spectrum of of the love that you feel for it, gives such relief that it's not just you, that other people can fulfil that role. Mm. I want to talk to you in particular about something you say in your book, which is that you wanted your children to take take you for granted. And let me preface that by reading a little bit around that sentence because it's quite a, a bold and strong statement. Over the years, I've let them take possession of me, encouraged it even. I've wanted them to feel that I'm there for them no matter what. I've wanted them to take me for granted, not because I've wanted them to become petty tyrants, but because by letting them lean on me while they were young, by offering them a slow childhood, I hoped that they'd grow up strong inside and so less in need of me later. When I read that, I thought, oh, that is such a beautiful way to look at what we're doing now in terms of giving ourselves to this role, to these beautiful little people, to all that that is required of us, in the hope that later the strength and independence will come from that knowing that we're always there. Is that a good summary of what you were saying there? Yeah, one one of my one of my thoughts was, look, I'm not a mummy mummy. I'm I'm incredibly there for my kids, but I've never been a mummy mummy. You are everything because I've always been really clear that life is the thing that is most important. Mm. Um, I did read a phrase by Henry Thoreau: "The more slowly trees grow at first, the sounder they are at the core." And he wrote. I think the same is true of human beings. Mm, wow, I love that. And, and that's the epigraph of a slow childhood. And, and that's something, although there wasn't a sort of slow movement when I had my kids, it was sort of in the air. It was a kind of frenetic London and people were beginning to think this is not going to work long term. Mm. At least women thinking about having children were thinking that. So I, and also because... Look, I had a food disorder when I was young. I had uh, my father die when I was 21 and he had heart attacks during my teens and and that was all really quite traumatic. But I didn't address it, I suppressed it and it turned into a food disorder that I then dealt with through, didn't deal with, but I explored in therapy when I got to London when I was 21. And so I knew that childhood and growing up was a really big deal and that um, despite everything things can go wrong and so I think in a quite concerted way I wanted to it's a bit like building foundations and my other thought is a bit like gardening you've got to get the soil right and then you can sit back and and you know like a sapling being put in the ground to tied to a stake well, if you put the stake in at the right moment and water it for a year or so, you can take the stake out later mm. and it'll be fine and it'll be straight and, and it won't need watering. So although I think it's a fantasy to say, oh, well, they're not going to need me later, and it was a bit of a kind of fiction to get me through those really intense years, you know, the idea that they'll be independent of me sooner if they could lean on me as they grew up. You know, they are still dependent on me, but not in the same way. Mm. I think if you really open yourself to another emotionally, whether it's your dog or your husband or your family or your colleague, well, then the dikes are open, really. You can you can contain it, but 
that kind of neediness which I'm suggesting is there in all of us, well, in most people I've met, um, is going to be there always. And, and they're never not going to need you. But, but they may feel comfortable enough, buoyant enough, hopeful enough to get, get on with it themselves and also to find other people to support them yes. and to inspire them. Yes, that's right. It, hopefully, we instill in them a, an ability to trust others and to lean on others when they need it. Yeah. Mm, by showing it ourselves too, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I've been very trusting. Um, <clears throat> I always speak to strangers and I've, I'm also big on first impressions. I think you can take in a lot. Um, and when I had people help with my children, I never had qualified people. They were students largely, and I did pay them informally, and I've never regretted any of those relationships. They were all, you know, really quite intense. Um, but I wasn't looking for someone with all the ticks in the boxes. I was looking for someone that clicked with me and had what I call a sparkle in their eye. Who kind of got it about life. Um, because I knew from that that when I was away and they were with my kids, that they would be able to communicate that to them and to make the day that they had with them, it was usually for four or five hours, into a kind of adventure yes. and not just passing the time. Yes, beautiful. So if you were to sum up what a slow childhood means, especially... You know, even now, it's. I would, I would say it feels even more frantic when we've got phones attached to our hands all the time and social media and the extra pressure that all comes with that. If we were to try and disconnect from that a little bit and and cultivate a slower childhood for our children and for ourselves, what would that mean to you? Okay, I'm going to respond from the inside and from the outside. Emotionally, I think it's about having the opportunity to and and this is for an adult and for a child it doesn't really matter but okay we'll, we'll talk about children but to give to give a child the chance to explore their own imaginings their own what if their own messes up in an open ended unpressured way and to do that with a kind of relish, I suppose. And I think for that you need materials. I think creativity is quite a, a practical thing. Mm. You know, if you're going to draw, you need nice pencils mm. and you need not to think you have to go to soccer in 20 minutes. So you need the fantasy of open-ended time. Wow. And then from the outside, I would say you will only be able to communicate downtime to your children to the degree that you can experience it yourself. And that is one of the toughest things to do as a mother I have found. Yes. And ultimately, I mean, I tried turning the, the Wi-Fi off on Sundays and then I realized I actually had to take my watch off and leave it in the bathroom because mm. otherwise I'd be checking in and just finding out if the world was going to make sense of my life and not me. I love that. 
Especially allocating a day or, a t- you know, once again, we're talking about time, but at least allowing some space, as you say, the fantasy of not having to be anywhere or be doing anything at a certain time. That's what we need for that creativity to, to bubble up, isn't it? Yes, mm. but it's really hard. Mm. I think that's, that's what I'm trying to get over, yes. that you need a lot of discipline and you need to feel that you're doing something important by not doing it. <laughs> yes, so true. It and does it, need to feel important. It is counterintuitive and our brains are now dopamine-wired we want that little hit mm. and and it is not our friend. Mm. Wow, I love that. What do you think motherhood has taught you about yourself? That I'm nicer and more horrible than I thought I was before. <laughs> um, I wow. taught a lot of Dickens and Dickens has these sort of harridan female characters, some of whom neglect their children woefully others of whom are totally devoted. And I always thought they were caricatures, but now I find that I'm each and every one of them in little parts. Um, and, and I think my the friends I have my age would all agree. You know, we come through the glass darkly, but also, also more brightly. I think it makes you richer and stronger, but it also breaks you first. I love that. Thank you. So if you could go back and tell yourself one thing before you started on all of this, way back in London in the days where you were contemplating parenthood, what do you think you would have said to yourself? It's going to take a lot longer than you think. Uh, You will be fine. And that there will be plenty of life after. Mm. Yes, there will be plenty of life after. That's what brings us comfort. Well, that's what could bring us comfort in those moments where we feel like we're losing ourselves so much. It does pass by and it, there is another chapter. I think, I think writing really helps. Mm. You know, even if it's a few words in in a paper diary, um, I think, you know, I'm immensely grateful to my younger self for keeping all the notes that I did. Mm. Um, you know, I now have a very vivid picture of my son in a playpen that I know would have blurred into some kind of photo or, mm. you know, shot of him because it's not the visual, it's the emotional that is so powerful to remember. You know, that's the deja vu. It's not the sight of the little socks. Um, it's the, the grittiness of experience and, and I think you, we lose a lot of that. And the other thing I'm terribly mindful of is that I got my parents all wrong just as my teenagers are getting mm-hmm. my husband and I all wrong because Oedipally they're inspired, inspired and I don't write about this in the book because I don't write about teenage because I don't think it's my business to go public on that but I think that teenagers in order to separate are designed to show up their parents as strongly incompatible. Yes. They're on a mission to tease you so badly, especially this generation, because they're quite well educated and good at describing things, um, just as to kind of show, to make a joke of the compatibility of their parents. Um, and I did that with my parents. And you, I mean, underlying is, you know, how could they possibly have got together? Or how could I be me? Really, that's what they're saying. How could I be this funny mixture of you two? Um, 
Yes, and that's part of their role as teenagers is to, yes. is to question and yourself. So, that. And mm. so your role as a couple is to survive that mm. and not take it to heart mm. and to see the funny side. Um, and it is actually incredibly funny a lot of the time, but it's a kind of painful funny. Yes, yes. You have to have self-awareness around it to see the funny side, I would imagine. Mm, but I, I feel that wasn't quite an answer to your question. No, it was beautiful. Oh, it's such great <laughs> insights. Thank you. And so finally, Helen, if you were to think of the term happy mama, especially perhaps back when your children were younger, what would it mean? What does it mean to you being a happy mama? I think to get to the end of the day, there's a moment I describe where I've just, I used to sing my, I used to sing to both of my kids actually, just before I turned out the light. So I've done all that and I've kind of half closed their doors and I've come downstairs and between leaving their bedroom door and coming to the bottom of the stairs, I haven't left motherhood behind, but I've just kind of let it go. It's just sort of fallen from my shoulders. And by the time I get to the bottom, I'm just me. And I know that I've done what I emotionally call my job. I've, I've been there for my kids and we've had a really nice day and done all I could possibly do. And then I still had this bit of me that isn't touched by motherhood there for me at the bottom of the stairs for maybe two hours before I would go to bed. Beautiful. I totally agree. Hmm. And I do think it's a conscious switching as you walk down the stairs hmm. or you walk into a different room or whatever it is. I often use the dimming of the lights, changing the lighting in the house in that moment to kind yeah. of signify the changing over to this is me as a woman now yeah. and that part of the day is finished. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. Hard to do though. Don't Never underestimate <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that reminder because it is. It is hard yeah, to do but is. really important. It's a discipline. Mm, it is a discipline. And I thank didn't you. always manage to do it. Mm. Mm. Helen, thank you so much. It's so lovely to, I guess, get a, a peek into the other side, have come through with these big questions of mm. devotion versus ambition, how we honour our children's needs and the needs of them in a busy overwhelming world that we live in without mm. totally losing ourselves Look, I, well. I guess what I, what I would say, which perhaps I didn't um, fully, fully express, is that I've been given back so much by my kids. You know, they're so nice to be around. I mean, I say that with, you know, small reservations, I still can't get my daughter out of bed in the morning, but... Um, they're just really good company. And I think if you spend that time with them at the beginning, if you let them party to your thoughts, even your deep thoughts, I never talk to them as little ones. I just talk to them. Mm. And if you do that in a companionable, let's get on with it, this is, this is our life sort of way and make them feel that they're at the center of things, you will be so rewarded. I can even cry thinking about it, but you really will. Oh, so beautiful. Thank you. We do need to remember that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your insights and sharing them with me. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Happy Mama Movement. To make sure you never miss an insight, please subscribe to this podcast 
and also pop on over to see the latest issue of the Happy Mama magazine at www.happymama.com.au. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.